You're listening to the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. This episode was dropped in the middle of the Easter weekend, so in deference to the season, we've got a brief segment based on one of Urban Astronomer's religiously themed articles. How is astronomy used to calculate the dates of religious festivals? And our feature item is another interview. This time around, I managed to get a hold of Neil Fulyun, who owns Telescope Shop, one of the few dedicated telescope and astronomy suppliers in Southern Africa. We met under the pretext of having him troubleshoot my primary telescope, and he was very supporting about having a microphone suddenly shoved in his face. Neil is not only a telescope salesman, but also a dedicated and hard-working astrophotographer. The judges at Scopex awarded him first prize in the 2015 astrophotography contest for his image of the famous Horsehead Nebula in Orion. I neglected to get his permission to include a copy of that image in the show notes, so instead you'll find a link to it, as well as links to his shop's website and a few other things that get mentioned as well. Incidentally, about halfway through recording the interview, his partner Jess joined us. None of my microphones were near the seat she originally picked, so the recording basically had several minutes of silence uh, before I was able to fix the situation, which I've then had to edit out. So if it seems odd that somebody starts speaking who hadn't previously been heard from or even introduced, well, that's why. But before we cut to the interview, a few words on why the date of Easter and many other religious festivals changes from year to year and how it's calculated. Cultures around the world set aside special days every year as festivals or times of remembrance. Modern examples, like Workers' Day or Mother's Day or Independence Day, Valentine's Day and so on, they all last 24 hours and take place on the same date every year. But the really old festivals, as observed by world religions, they're often a little more flexible. Their dates can vary from year to year, sometimes by as much as a month. So what's going on? Well, astronomy wasn't always the aesthetically pleasing scientific pursuit that we recognize today. It used to deal with very fundamental and important issues of daily life. When do we harvest? When will the winter end? When will the moon rise so we can travel or hunt by night? And when will it be too dark? With astronomy dealing with such daily matters of survival it makes sense that the heavenly cycles would be used to indicate more ethereal matters. When do the gods want us to migrate? Is this a good time to marry, or should I wait for a more auspicious date? And so astrology was born. And remember that until only a few hundred years ago, astronomy was astrology. And so religions turned to astronomy to time their festivals. In the Christian calendar, festivals are either timed according to a fixed calendar date, like Christmas, for example, or in relation to Easter. Ascension Day is celebrated 40 days after Easter, while Lent is a 40-day period of fasting that ends on Easter. And here already comes a complication, because Sundays are holy days, people celebrating Lent are not required to fast on those days. Accordingly, the calendar duration of Lent is actually 40 days, not counting Sundays, so it's usually actually 46 days. 
And then there is Good Friday, which is the Friday directly before Easter. So when is Easter celebrated? Well, the official formula, as determined by the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, is that Easter shall fall on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the March equinox. In other words, Easter can fall any time between March 21st and April 25th. But before you go making your own calculations, you need to note that the formula relies on slightly different definitions of astronomical terms. Full moon in this case means 14 days after the new moon. And the March equinox is assumed to always fall on the 21st of March. These are both merely approximations of the actual definitions and they're there just to prevent errors and disputes. Now, the Jewish festival of Passover is an interesting case. Its date is determined according to the lunar calendar, which does not correspond to the standard civil calendar. In the Jewish lunar calendar, a month starts immediately after new moon, when the first sliver of the moon's crescent is visible. Since the phases of the moon follow a cycle of about 28 and a half days, each lunar month lasts either 28 or 29 days. The problem with this system is that the lunar cycle runs 12.4 times per year. So the lunar calendar slips out of sync with the seasons quite rapidly. For this reason, a 13th leap month is added every few years. So when is Passover? Well, by the lunar calendar, it's on the same date every single year, on the 14th of Nisan. What does that correlate to in the civil calendar? Like Easter, it can fall anywhere from mid-March to mid-April. Islam also follows a lunar calendar, but unlike the Jewish calendar, there is no efforts to synchronize it with the seasons. Accordingly, the Islamic lunar calendar doesn't need corrections and it has no leap months. The Islamic year is thus shorter than the civil year, measuring 12 lunar cycles and not one earthly orbit. As a result, a specific Islamic date will wander all over the civil calendar as the years pass. Ramadan is actually the ninth month of the Islamic lunar calendar, and the entire month is considered a holy festival in which all able-bodied Muslims are required to fast from sunrise to sunset. And so we see that the Christian calendar correlates with the modern civil calendar, but the dates of festivals are calculated afresh every year based on astronomical events, while the Jewish and Islamic festivals are on fixed dates every single year, and then adherents need to refer to tables to figure out what date on the civil calendar matches with the fixed date on their own lunar calendar. Okay, so what's 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 your background? How did you how did you get into astronomy? How did you get into selling telescopes? Um, is there anything else you do? Okay, how I got involved in the whole astronomy situation was about seven years ago, I went to the Coca-Cola Dome to a photo and film expo. And the one person there said, you can photograph through a telescope. Okay. And before that, I've never looked up. I never knew anything about astronomy. Uh And then I got my first telescope set up. It was a little Mac 90 Skywatcher scope on Uh an EQ1 mount. Right. And then I quickly discovered that that does not work for astrophotography. Mm -hmm. And then we met the previous owners of Telescope Shop, Gerard, mm-hmm. and then he sold me a proper setup with a 18-inch Ritchie Cretan telescope and mm-hmm. a German equatorial mount, and then I started in astrophotography. Okay. And then from there, I just expanded and started learning everything about astronomy, mm-hmm. and then we became quite good friends with Gerard, and then one day, 
um, we were speaking to him and he says, why don't you take the shop over from us? And we thought that's not a bad idea. Then we mm. bought the shop over from him. Okay. Well, why did he give it up? Was he retiring or sick of the business? Or No, he uh, started getting Parkinson's. Oh, shame. And then okay. it's difficult for him to handle the equipment and stuff. Yes, yeah. So you've had it for how many years now? Mm, four or five years. Okay. Roughly. We also do repairs and everything on printers and that. Okay. Uh, not printers, sorry, telescopes. Right, right. <laughs> and we also do 3D printing for parts of telescopes and that that people can't get. Then I can 3D print the parts for them. I oh, see so you sell the 3D printers, don't you? Yes. On, uh, I've seen them on the website. So. Yes, we also sell the 3D printers. So now if somebody comes to you and they want to buy a telescope, um, they come to you, let's say they're a student or somebody's been saving up their money but they haven't got a lot of money. They just want a telescope that they can use. What would you recommend to them? Okay, that are always first start off with the budget that the people got mm-hmm. and then also what they want to do with the telescope. Mm-hmm. But what I normally first recommend for someone that's starting out is to get a Dobsonian telescope mm-hmm. because they're relatively cheap and you can get a large aperture telescope and they're not too difficult to transport mm-hmm. and you get very good views out of the telescopes. Mm-hmm. So that's what I normally first recommend for everybody. What sort of size then? Um, I always recommend, uh, I start at the 6-inch, mm-hmm. but I recommend the 8 or 10-inch for the people to go for. So whatever they can afford then? Yes. Okay. What if, they, if they've if they got a bit more money then? So let's say it's um, not a student anymore, it's just somebody with a bit of money to spend. But also they, they, they're new to this, they want to know. Uh, they're not sure what they want to specialize in just yet. But Okay. What I also always tell the people when they come in, Mm. They must always look if they want to learn astronomy or they want something that does everything for them. Right. Because if you want to learn the sky, then a Dobsonian is basically a must, so then you learn where the objects in the sky is. Mm-hmm. But the people that do want to spend a bit more money, they normally go for the computerized or go-to telescopes where they can just basically press a button and it will go to the object for them. Yeah. But then you don't necessarily learn the sky. Uh-huh. Well, they can argue. I think with this, I've got a go-to scope at the moment. I think it's a SkyWatch EQ4 with the, the add-ons. Setting that thing up, it's hard to do if you don't know the sky. It tells me, oh, you point it at yes. this named star, for example. Yes, if you've got the equatorial telescope, the German equatorial mounts, then they're all difficult to set up. Hmm. Because you must first know where true south is and point to true south. You need to get your angle of your telescope right for the altitude. Mm-hmm. Like Joburg is roughly 26 and a half degrees. Yeah. And then you must know the names of your stars mm. on the German equatorial mounts. But if you go for the other, the smaller makes like Celestron has got, mm-hmm. like for example, ones on the Alt Azimuth mount, like a, the 127 SLT, for example. Right. That one has got a small... 127 will uh, max it off Cassegrain tube on an old azimuth mount. Okay. So that one you just basically put down. You enter your time, date, and your location where you are. Mm-hmm. You point it to any three random objects in the sky, and it's aligned. Then it knows where it is and what objects you want to find That's when you incredible. ask for it. How do they do that? <laughs> uh, that uh, With the programming in that, when you enter your GPS coordinates, uh-huh. then they basically know where on the earth you are. Right. And then they know how the sky should look above you. Right. And then when you point it to three stars, then the mount picks up where those stars are and does a map to like a little star map. 
and then it knows where it is. It's amazing what they're doing these days. And then a person also gets uh, more advanced telescopes. Right. Like, for example, the some of them, like the CGE 925 GPS one, oh. that has got built-in GPS and everything in it. Right. So you just switch it on, wait about five minutes for GPS, and then oh. you can point it to three bright objects, and then it's done. Hmm. And if you want to take it a step further, yeah. then a person can get the Celestron StarSense Auto Align. Mm-hmm. It's like a little camera that you put on your telescope right. instead of a finder scope. And then when you switch it on, you press a line button and then it moves a telescope and it photographs the skies. Right. And then it takes a map of those images and uses that for alignment of the telescope. So and it recognizes need, the stars and you don't have to find them for it. That's correct. And you need no knowledge of the sky whatsoever. Because uh, another thing that if you purchasing your telescope for the first time that you must be very careful of is not to buy a telescope that is too big and too heavy that you can't handle it or don't want to handle it. Oh, I've seen that, yeah. Because <laughs> the best telescope to buy is the one that you're going to use. Right, right. Because if you buy one that's too big, then you look outside, oh, it's a nice, beautiful, clear night. Now I've got to slip my telescope out. It's too heavy. And I don't want to do that. Mm, well, I get that myself all the time. Even the little one that I've got now, the conditions aren't 100% perfect. Uh, yes. Is it worth the effort? No. So yes. it stays <laughs> it stays upstairs. That's always a problem. So we often sell telescopes to people mm-hmm. and then they say, no, this is exactly what they want. And then in a few months' time, they come back and say, we want something a little bit smaller yeah. so it's easier to transport or easier to handle. You know, when I, when I first started, when I, first, when I had my first telescopes, I was high school, varsity age. And then I was lugging, I think it was an 8-inch Maxitov on Equatorial Mount. And yes. I had this thing, it was permanently set up, just the legs folded, leaning in a corner of my bedroom. And probably every single night, I would lug it up, carry it through the house, set it up in the garden. Conditions were rubbish, almost overcast. There's a gap, great, I look at that. And it was it was nothing. And I'm not 18 anymore. You know? yes. <laughs> and I'm not old, but I'm not 18. And it's... Yeah, something much smaller and lighter definitely is, I think, much more useful to me. We're getting that also quite often now, people that are going on to retirement and that, Mm. and then they say they want to sell their larger stuff, get smaller telescopes, it's easier to handle. Mm -hmm. Or if the people that are going to retirement have got quite a few funds, then they build an observatory at the house and then go for bigger equipment. Right, right. So you just walk out, open the door and look. Yes. Start using, yeah. Um, okay, you also do repairs here. That's right. Uh, actually, that's why I'm here. I bought mine in <laughs> to get checked out. <laughs> um, what do you find are common common things that can go wrong? Okay, the most common thing that I find that go wrong is people don't cover their telescopes or keep them in cases, mm-hmm. and then they get exceptionally dirty from dust. Or some people think that telescopes are waterproof, and they mm-hmm. leave them outside. And uh-huh. then they get all rusty and stuff and all the optics get dirty uh-huh. and then they bring it in for repairs. Okay. So the most common thing for repairs is dirty telescopes. Yeah. And then the other ones that's very seldom is if something happens with electronics or that on a telescope and electronics need repair. Uh-huh. But mostly it's dirty telescopes or alignment of mirrors. So the old story that glass doesn't wear out and... That still holds true. I mean, they, so the mechanics never fail the optics. Well, what's going to happen to the optics? But 
Yes, because the other day a person brought a telescope in from Namibia for us for repairs. Mm-hmm. And the telescope is roughly oh, about 22 years old. Mm-hmm. And he brought it in for the first time for a service and a clean. Right. And so everything was still working in a very good condition on that one. Because uh, if a person looks at it, um, at your telescope, right. you might have a little speck of dust or something on your mirror or on your corrector plate, depending on the type of telescope you got. Mm-hmm. And if you, just say for example, you're looking at the moon or Jupiter through a telescope, you can take your hand and move it in front of the optics. Mm-hmm. And you might notice a very slight dimming in the image. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine those little dust specks, that does almost nothing to your image. Right. So if your telescope has just got a little bit of dust, then it's not that necessary for cleaning. Mm-hmm. But if it gets exceptionally dirty that you can't see anything, then you need a clean on it. Okay. So it sounds like most of the things that go wrong are, uh, how, how do you put it, user error or abuse or people just not looking after it properly? So mostly people not looking after the equipment. Mm-hmm. And then the odd occasion is wildlife or pets. Because uh-huh. we had one that a person brought in and his pet pig thought it was very nice toy, <laughs> this telescope, and pushed it over and rolled on it and done it business and everything oh, on the telescope. Gee. And then they bring it in for service and repairs. Did they warn you about the smell? Or? You notice that when it comes in. <laughs> so what's uh, a common, shall we say, mistakes or pitfalls that people make uh, with new telescopes or... Okay, what a lot of people, mistakes they do when they're purchasing telescopes mm. is they want to come in, they want to buy something immediately that's cheap. Right. Like the small telescopes that you get at a lot of the, the games and mass build stores and that kind of stuff. Mm. And then when they do buy it, because they think, oh, it's a 1,500 Rand for a telescope, that's not bad. Mm. And then they get it, they look through it, and then they're immediately disappointed because they don't see what they expect to see right so what i always tell people is rather save a little bit more money so you've got a bit more budget and buy something that's decent that you will be able to see something properly with Mm -hmm. okay what's the best way would you say to for someone to learn how to use their scope properly because this is something i found in my own experience the first the first week is a nightmare well no it's a voyage of exploration put it that way you don't see much but you learn so much and then the next few months are frustrating because you don't see much and then over time you find with the same instrument you're seeing more and more and more yes is there is there a way to speed up that process or is there some way you can learn it rather than having to uh, having to trial and error it yourself okay what we do do also we offer a service where we go out to people's houses Mm-hmm. And then we give them a basic training on how the telescope works and a basic layout of the sky, basically how to find stuff and how to use star maps right. so that you can locate objects in the sky. Okay. The other good way of learning is joining an astronomy club mm-hmm. and then go out with their monthly meetings and that out with other astronomers. Mm-hmm. And then if you are stuck, then you can ask the other astronomers, I'm trying to find Jupiter. Where is this? Right. And then everybody's got a green laser or something. They can point it out in the sky. And that way you can also learn a lot quicker where the objects are located in the sky. Okay. What telescope do you use? Okay, when I do basic viewing, mm-hmm. I take out a, like a 10-inch Dobsonian in that. Mm-hmm. 
because mm-hmm. it's easy, simple to set up and quick to start using. Right. That's when I just do basic viewing. Mm. But when I go into my astrophotography, that's a completely different setup. There I've got a Celestron CGM German Equatorial Mount. Yeah. And then I've got three telescopes that I run on there. A four-inch William Optics Refractor and two three-inch William Optics Refractors. Mm-hmm. And then I've got the camera connected to each telescope. This is the rig you used for that photograph where you won the uh, astrophotography competition at Scopex a few years ago. That's correct. So do you primarily, do you mostly do visual work or? Um, I very seldom do visual work. Most of the time when I look through a telescope is once I finish repairing a telescope for a custom, I'm testing the collimation and checking everything out for them. Right. But about 99% of the time, I've got my cameras and that connected for my astrophotography. Okay. What do you photograph mostly? I mean, are you, do you go for deep sky or planetary or? Okay. Most of the time, I focus on nebulas for deep sky imaging mm-hmm. because I find it fascinating all the colors and the nice shapes and that you can get from the nebulas. Mm-hmm. And then I also do some planetary work. But that's very seldom that I do planetary work. Right. But mostly focus on the larger nebulas. Okay. Do you have a like a workflow that you that, that you stick to, or everyone has their own way of doing things? So, so what's your sort of process? Okay. My first time when I start, I first decide what object I want to photograph. Mm. And then once I've decided that, like for example, that image that I won at Scopex at Horset Nebula. Right. I decided I'm going to image that and then I've put all my focus on that one object mm-hmm. and then every time I've got a clear night I'd set up my setup and then I'd start off with for example hydrogen alpha filter okay. and then I'd do as many images as possible with a hydrogen alpha mm-hmm. I normally like doing 20 to 30 images per filter and then when I've got another opportunity then I do oxygen 3 and then sulfur 2 mm-hmm. and then with my 171 mil scope, I've got a Canon SLR on there. Right. And then I use those for my one-shot color images. Okay. And then I split those images into my LRGB files. Okay. And then I start the tedious process of processing and stacking the images. Mm. What, do you, what, what do you use to stack them? Uh, I use PixInsight for all my editing on my images. Okay, so you do your, your stacking and, you, and, and then your post-processing as well in there or...? Yes. Okay. I do everything in the one software. Okay. Um, you talked about these different filters, all oxygen and hydrogen alpha and so on. What does that mean? Okay. Basically, those are what we call the narrowband filters. Mm-hmm. So that blocks out all of the light excepting for a certain band coming through. Right. Like, for example, on the oxygen 3, it just allows a small 6 nanometer uh, spectrum of light coming through. So okay. it blocks everything else out. So, for example, here in town where I do my astrophotography, mm-hmm. I don't have to worry much about light pollution because it blocks out all your unnatural light and that and only allows one band through. And that's called oxygen because that's the color that oxygen emits when it's excited. So, so that means that you're actually looking at the oxygen that's in the nebula then. That's correct. So that's the other thing that we can also maybe mention. Mm-hmm is also one thing that we normally recommend to people when they come into the shop before they purchase a telescope is first go out to an astronomy evening. Right. And then there's normally a variety of telescopes there and then they can look through all the different telescopes Mm -hmm. and then they can make a more 
informed decision? Well, I have run out of things to ask you. Um, how can people get hold of you? Okay, if people want to get hold of us, they can go onto our website. Uh-huh. That's www.telescopeshop.co.za. Right. They can also contact us by phone or email. Uh-huh. The email is sales at telescopeshop.co.za. Okay. And the phone number is 010-001-2698. Okay, great. You guys on, can people, uh, are you guys on social media at all? Uh, yes, we are on Facebook and Twitter. Uh-huh. Uh, That's about all. <laughs> what are the handles? Uh, <laughs> but I'm very seldom uh, on there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we know we are more active within uh, the uh, the ASA Association in Johannesburg. Okay. And we're very active with the West Rand Astronomy Club because. Uh-huh. Uh, we find we need to be out. We need to be doing uh, outreach programs and trying to get people interested in them. Mm. Apart from that, we go out as well. Mm. You know, so we're we like practical involvement in astronomy. Right. You know, mm. and uh, we I, I love the science part of it, and I'm sure Neil does too. Mm-hmm. You know, so we love going to Essa Johannesburg. Mm. And because it's the closest ASA club to us, unfortunately, ASA Pretoria is on the same night as West Rand Astronomy Club. Mm. Otherwise, we'd be there too. <laughs> yeah, mm. They're both in just the wrong locations for me. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. No, we. Uh, you mean Rack and Johannesburg? Uh, and Pretoria. And Pretoria. Yeah, because where mm. I stay. Um, it's just far enough that to get home from work and then turn around and drive back out okay. to any of them. Yes. It's a special occasions thing. Yes. You know, it's, uh, yes. And, and then it's a race to traffic. And, yeah. And uh, apart from that, you have a growing family and I sincerely hope uh, that your children will one day be astronomers. You know, and we take a great interest in radio astronomy as well. Really? That's growing. That's actually, growing tremendously in South Africa. And if you just watch it, what's happening there, mm-hmm. you know, I think that South Africa is going to be in the market soon for a lot of information with regard to radio astronomy. And I think public, the biggest thing they ask is, are there aliens? But they're oh. not aliens because yeah. to aliens, we're also aliens. <laughs> 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 you know? But mm. I think that radio astronomy with our interest in Morse, mm. the Morse code and so on, when we hear tap, 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 the hairs on our necks should rise. Or <laughs> <laughs> the music in mm. special tones, you know. Yes. You never know these days. <laughs> <laughs> there's actually a, there's a project out there that's got my name on it. Um, a guy I knew before they immigrated, um, he was very excited. One of those people that has a 3D printer at home and has his electronics kits and he's got his Arduinos and he's got his Raspberry Pi and he's got all... At the time I met him, yeah. (laughs) At the time I met him, he had just discovered his software-defined radio, which he had a little little USB gadget on his PC, which he was coding for. And he decided he wanted to build a radio telescope. And he had... um, It was an old satellite TV uh, dish. 
with the feed horn and he hooked it all up and he was he never finished the project because at that point the next was to build a mount mm. just something simple that he could steer it to where he wanted it to to go mm. um and he came to me a lot for advice on the actual astronomy part of it which ended up being minimal because a small rig like that i said well you can look at the sun you'll be able to tell where the sun is uh you could probably pick up jupiter and there's a couple of other interesting sources but mm. it wasn't useful until he was able to steer the dish mm. but he still went and put my name on this thing as a <clears throat> as a major contributor and he left all the equipment with me except the electronics so now I've got this dish and I've got the, the feed on and the cabling but no mount and no actual radio no 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 receiver for the things <laughs> yeah. I think I should try and hook you up with somebody in uh, there's this man in PE who gave up on normal astron- astronomy and went into radio astronomy. Mm. And every now and then he comes back to me and says, have you got any equipment for me? Mm-hmm. And I say, no, it's scarce. I look for it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And he's very interested as well. Yeah. And then uh, I believe another lady in Westrand Astronomy Club knows somebody who's also very interested in radio astronomy. Mm. That's also a thing that I'm playing around with is uh, Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and that. Uh-huh. And I also was looking at building a little, like a radio telescope, uh-huh. because in the back room I've got about 40 satellite dishes and receivers and stuff right. from when I've done the STV installations. Okay. So also I was thinking of building something, a little mount to go to and tracking and stuff. Mm. I mean, that particular rig would never have been useful for any, uh, I think, a tenth as satisfying as just looking optically through a telescope. Yes. Mm. But it would have been handy to donate to a school science department or something and, and yes. sort of show, see, the sun is not just bright and light, it's pumping out all these radio waves as well and yes. see what else we can find. And Well, you can get a solar telescope, solar scopes, mm-hmm. but wow, they're a bit pricey. They are. <laughs> And Just then, to import them, they price and never mind selling them. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of another episode. If you enjoyed it half as much as we enjoyed making it, why not tell a friend about us? We keep an eagle eye on our listener statistics because you out there listening to these shows are the only reason we keep making them. Every new listener, therefore, is cause to celebrate. If you've only recently found us and started listening, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet me directly at youastronomer or leave a comment on the show notes page at www.urban-astronomer.com or even just send a plain old email to podcast at urban-astronomer.com. I would love to share what you think of what we're doing here and I'll definitely give you a shout out on the show if you do. Meanwhile... Did you know that you can subscribe directly to the show on your mobile device so that episodes are downloaded automatically and arranged in a playlist for you? Simply search for Urban Astronomer on iTunes, Stitcher or whatever service your podcast software uses. Or if you can't find us, just visit www.urban-astronomer.com and click the subscribe link on the right hand side. No more hoping to notice the new episode announcements on social media, no manually browsing to websites and downloading MP3s, just the convenient delivery of my and other recordings in a way that lets you listen through your earbuds while jogging or driving or anywhere else that you might have otherwise listened to music or an audiobook. Until next week then, clear skies.